Okay, let's, um, hey, let's give him an extra three minutes, and we'll just go ahead and uh, get started. And um, let's get started, Mike. Come on up. just by clarifying one thing, and that is, did the ancients believe that the world was flat? Because I said, the reason why people used to think the earth is flat is because that's what the Bible teaches. And what I should have qualified that is, to, I should have qualified it to say, that's what the Bible teaches with the imagery that it uses. No, the ancients didn't believe that the world was flat necessarily. I don't know what they believed on that in that regard, because I don't think the Bible answers that question. But to say that the Bible uses the image of a flat earth is not the same as to say the peop- that the Bible teaches from a scientific point of view that the earth is flat, and that's where people got confused. They confused the ancient images, take something literally that was intended to be taken figuratively, things are going to get a little bit screwy. Does does that help? It would be like saying, you don't believe that the sun goes around the earth, but you use the language of the sun going around the earth in terms of sunrise and sunset. Good? Okay. Uh, Through Ancient Eyes Part 2, Creation Images. We've looked at the, uh, the heavens. Uh, we've looked at the foundations of the earth. We've looked at the pillars, uh, the windows. Now we're going to turn our attention more specifically to some imagery in Genesis 1 and 2, the first creation story. Um, but before language concerning God, now I think we all have to admit it's kind of hard to talk about God for two reasons. One, God's infinite. And how do we as human beings even get our arms around infinite? Some people say that the universe is 15 billion light years wide. Yeah, sorry, that's somewhere maybe in Canada and I rent a car and the speedometer's like kilometers per hour. Or somebody says like, yeah, that's the 30 meters from here. I, I got to get out my, my I have... I have, ca- I have apps for all of that that, that calculate, you know, how do I go from inches to millimeters? Um, it, as a woodworker, it would be w- in, easier in a lot of ways if we used metrics. I was talking to Bill about it, and rule of thumb is when you turn a bowl that's wet, you mean you just took it, the wood out of the log, that if it's 10 inches wide, you leave the wall about one inch, one-tenth. Yeah, if you have a metric ruler, that's real easy to do. Uh, but if you're if it's like okay this bowl is nine and seven eighths wide uh, what's a tenth of nine and seven eighths now my son the 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 uh, brain just works that way but uh, I don't have that in my DNA so um, we're we're talking about to to talk about infinite not fifteen billion light years infinite. How do we get our arms around that? Well, some people have said that all language about God is figurative. All language. 
when the Bible says God is my rock, that's figurative. When the Bible says God is love, that's not figurative. When the Bible says God is righteous, that's not figurative. Not all language about God is figurative. But all language about God is analogical. What we mean by that is that when we're saying anything about God, there is an analogy between what we're saying about God and something in creation. It's, it's not, even to say God is love, how do you know what that means if you don't have any understanding of human love? So language about God is not necessarily all figurative, but it is all analogizing divine love and human love. They're not identical. Divine love and human love cannot be identical. Why? Because human love is always finite and God is always infinite. There are analogies between God as father and a human father. But there are only analogies. God as father and me as father, not identical. And so God is incomprehensible. Uh, I'm not a philosopher or the son of a philosopher, but back in the 70s when I was in seminary, um, I studied the teaching of Cornelius Van Til, if that name rings a bell with anybody. Cornelius Van Til was a, um, uh, a Dutch theologian apologist uh, who at one time was the prime minister of Holland and a very astute theological uh, thinker. Yeah, a lot of what Van Til said... It went right over my head. But there were some things that I took away from him that have been helpful for my entire life. And one of them is this. We can never know God exhaustively. Nothing we say about God do we as we are. It's finite. And we're talking about someone who is infinite. We can never know God exhaustively. But we can know him truly. You can truly know God, even though you will never know God as God knows God. I remember when I was young, I would think to heaven, then I will know everything. Wrong. Right? That's wrong. Because in heaven, we're still going to be what? Starts with an F. We're going to be finite. And so our knowledge is going to be what in heaven? It's still going to be finite. You're, in other words, you're never going to become God. Only God is infinite. Only God has a... And so even when we're speaking literal truth about God, God is love. God is just. God is holy. That's still drawing analogies. It's not, it's not an exhaustive knowledge of who God is. He always remains beyond our ability to know him fully. But we can know him. So while not all language about God is figurative, there is much language about God in the Bible that God that is figurative. I've used one, Father. Very common. Jesus taught us to pray, Our, our Father. So we can have the statement, um, God is my Father. 
similar heaven. And there are analogies. Not the same. God's not my biological father. He didn't procreate with my mother and I'm the result. Uh, But there are clear analogies between God as father and my father as father. This is why some people have a hard time non-Christian and abusive or a Christian and abusive background. Especially if the abuse has been perpetrated by father. And you say, oh, I've got the solution to all of your problems. Your heavenly father loves you. And what does this person hear? Yeah, just like a long time for people to reacclimate to the imagery in the Bible. Because when they hear those words, all of their associations are negative. But when the Bible's using that language, it's using it intending to create all positive associations. The point is, God is not a human father, but there are analogies between God as father and father. He's not a literal father. There are analogies, and the Bible uses the imagery of father. Let's look at a couple of other ones. Uh, rock, 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-two. For who is God besides the Lord, and who is the rock except our God? Now, God is not metamentary. He's not any kind of rock. But there are analogies between the solidness of a rock and the solidness of God. So God's not a literal rock, but If we think analogically, there are analogs between a rock and a God, so that when we say God is my rock, that speaks to us, to the the right brain and the inner being in a way that the left brain logic proposition stuff doesn't do, which is why we get both propositional truth uh, and uh, artistic, right-brained, imagistic, artistic truth about God. How about eyes? Second Chronicles fourteen two. Asa did what was good and right in the, the eyes of the Lord, but have you ever stopped to think about the fact that he doesn't have any? Right? Children's catechism. God does not have a body like men. God, John. God is starts with an S. God is spirit. God, who is God? God is spirit and has not a body as having eyes. That's not literally the case. How about mouth? Deuteronomy 8.3. God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, which he doesn't have. Right? God doesn't of God. But there's a na- there are analogies between humans who use their mouths to communicate with words and God giving us his word to reveal himself. He doesn't literally have a mouth, but there are analogies. The thing that, that 
that sometimes is hard for us when we're first thinking about these things, literal, that's figurative. What many people hear in the back of their minds is, you don't think it's true. We've got to dispense with that. You can say something that is literally true, and you can say something that is figuratively true. The Bible uses literal, the Bible uses figurative language to communicate truth. It truly was a beautiful sunrise. Now, not literally, but you get the point. Jesus is not a literal vine, but he truly is the one that you need to stay connected to. Jesus is not a literal shepherd, but he truly is the one that watches over. So we have to get rid of this idea that if somebody says, I don't think that's literal, that what they're saying is, I don't think that that's true. It can be literal. It can be figurative and truth. And Figurative language is used in the Bible to teach truth about God. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There are analogies between the compassion of a father and God's compassion. They're not identical. God's compassion is, what's the I word? Infinite. And a father's compassion is finite, but not only finite, it's sinful. Yet there can still be analogies drawn between God as father and the human father. Uh, Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield of my salvation, my stronghold. Look at this one verse and how many images, related images are used. Rock, refuge, shield, horn, stronghold. God is none of those literally. But those are all communicating truth about who God is in your relationship with him. And how reliable is. Uh, an image from our world that comes to mind uh, for me is a particular insurance company. What's the image that I'm thinking of with a particular insurance company? Prudential. And what's the image? The Rock of Gibraltar. Yeah. What we see that image and we think, now that's, that's immovable, Right? A very well-conceived image, and it has endured for many, many years. Isn't, isn't that the kind of insurance company you want behind you? By the way, I'm not a broker. I'm just talking about the genius of the image, the rock of Gibraltar. Uh, and that's who, in our language, that's who God is. God is my rock of Gibraltar. I can count on him. I can go to him. He'll always be there for me. He did in figurative language. Now, figurative language does not undermine the truthfulness of Scripture or the knowability of God. You can know God truly. The Scriptures are true. 
And a lot of that truth that the scriptures reveal about God is in figurative language. So with that being said, let's look at two things in Genesis very specific. But with the generic one, we're going to look at some specifics. The first thing that we're going to look at is anthropomorphic language. Anybody know the Greek word anthropos and what it means? Anybody? You might have studied it in undergrad. What's the course called? And what are you studying when you study anthropology? You're studying man. But you're not studying studying a different, you're looking through humanity through a different lens. So that's the anthropo, man. Morph. When something morphs, what does it change? Starts with an F. It changes form. So anthropomorph is man formed. Anthropomorphisms, when we're using human characteristics, anthro, and speaking of God as if he is in human form. We've already looked at some. Eyes, mouth, God walking in the garden. That's what we want to look at here in Genesis 1 and 2, how the Bible speaks of God, but figuratively, with anthropomorphism. Okay, first example. Uh, Let's look at Genesis 2-7, where it says God formed the man. Genesis 2, 7. Then God formed a man, the man. Now, a little bit of Hebrew here. Uh, Hebrew words typically are made up of three core letters. And musically, you might think of those three core letters as the theme. And those are consonants, and if you change the vowels, you're playing variations on the theme. So, K, words that come from those three core letters tend to have meanings related to royalty and reigning, that sort of thing. So, Malach, he reigned. Melech, he's a king. Malkah. Queen, Malchu, they reigned. Ah, dominion. So they have those three core letters, but when you put different vowels and prefixes and suffixes, it's like musical variation on the theme of kinging. So the word that is used here for form is uh, a Y, and then it's a T, and we don't have a letter that does that. We do say tts, rats, bats, hats. So we say ts, but we're, we're only allowed to say it at the end. Hebrew says it anywhere they want. We do have it in two words, but we don't use it. That was a powerful tsunami. How do we spell that? T-S-U. But we don't say tsunami, do we? We drop the T out and we just say Uh, But we drop out the T because it's easier just to say psychologist. And then there's this little thing that flies around in the tropics called a tsetse fly. 
I don't even think we ever talk about teachers' lives, but it's P.S. But I can't think of any other places. So the first letter is a Y, the second letter is a T, and the third letter is a R. The kind of the musical theme is being a potter. And then you get variations. Yotzer, a potter. Yatsar, he formed. But it's not just any kind of forming. It's the forming of a potter. So that's what we have going on here when it says God formed the man. That's interesting. The dirt. And what what's the what's the medium of a potter? The dirt. Of course he wants a special kind of dirt. What kind of dirt does he want? You got you got it up here in Georgia from what I hear. Clay. Yeah, and so he, he takes the he takes the lump he, he he's a potter and he shapes and he forms, he yatsars the yotz that's the image that is used. Now God didn't literally do that. How do we know? What doesn't God have? So he can't literally do the work of a potter. Does that mean God didn't make the man? No. It just means the Bible's not telling us how God made the man. It's telling us that he made the man, but it's using words here that is theologically significant. God formed, and the best way we can capture it in English is to say God formed the earthling from the earth. Hebrew says God formed Adam from the Adamah. There's a play on words that intends. So God formed the man from the ground just doesn't do it. It missing is that we have come from the ground and we are connected to the ground. That we can't think of the ground and that means the rest of the creation around us as something other that we can just do without or dispense with. We have to realize that our existence is connected. Our thriving, our flourishing is connected to the thriving and flourish. Now, we're not taught how God made. We can't take this literally, that God with his non-existent hands reached down and took some clay and he shaped that clay into Adam. It's true. The Bible's telling us that God created. The Bible's telling us why God created. It's giving us theological stuff about the creation of Adam from the Adamah, but it's not telling us. Um, look at Isaiah 29:16. Isaiah, uh, probably a text that you know. Isaiah 29. You, Isaiah says, you turn as if the potter were thought to be the clay. He's saying, God's the potter, you're the clay, but you've got your whole worldview flipped around, uh, thinking that you, the clay, are the one that's in charge and not the potter. Shall what is formed, there's our yo, y, s, r, shall what is formed, our potter verb again, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? 
See, here again in Isaiah, God, with the exact same language of Genesis, God is be, we're being taught things about God and God's control, God's ownership, God's right to do with his creation what he wants in literal propositional form, as we might get in uh, the letter to the Romans. We're being taught this with a figure of speech, that God is the potter, and he's taking clay and shaping it into a pot. But remember, God is spirit and has not a body like man. So he can't be a literal potter. And this is the language that we in that kind of innocuous word form. We kind of just read right by it and don't stop to think about the image that is being communicated. God does not have hands. Scripture tells us that God created Adam. It does not tell us how. And so we shouldn't try to find some scientific explanation of dust or dirt and, you know, human body to create some kind of scientific link. Oh, look uh, at the DNA of this and the DNA of that. That's just completely wrongheaded. This is a figure of speech. More on that tomorrow. Okay, so anthropomorphism, God form. We're speaking of God as if he's in the form of a potter. Uh, staying in our verse of Gen- uh, next anthropomorphism, Gen 2-7, after God formed, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, God doesn't have hands. He can't be a literal potter. What else can't God do literally? Why can't God? See, we're speaking of God as if he's in the form of a human being. We're saying true things about God, but only in an analogous way. Not in a one with some kind of one-to-one correspondence. God did something that is like what a human being does when a human being does CPR. God does not have lungs, but God did impart life. The Bible doesn't tell us how. It's not that God like formed the man out of the clay pinched his nostrils, put his mouth on the mouth of Adam, and breathed into him. I think that's the way we kind of read this without stopping to think about it. We kind of naturally think that this is, and what other scriptures tell us about God, God being spirit, God not having a body, and then we realize that this has to be anthropomorphic language. This is a a figurative description that's teaching us the truth that our life comes directly from God. We're dependent on God for our life, but it's not telling us how uh, that life from some scientific point of view came into us. ...that runs throughout Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, God said. So let's just look at Genesis uh, 1, 3. If you just let your eye go down the page... You'll see at the start of every day, and God said, and God said, and God said. Uh, There are six days of creation. Day one, and God said. Day two, and God said. Day three, and God said, and God said. 
So we can say that there's like a day 3A and a day 3B. Then there's day 4, and God said, day 5, and God said, day 6, and God said, and God said. Uh, there, and so there's a, there's a certain weightiness to day 3 with creative acts. And those creative acts, along with the acts on 1 and 4 and 2 and 5, and all those days correspond uh, to each other. But in short, on day 3, one of the things that God does is creates vegetation. Remember, what were we as ancient Israelites for our occupation? We were farmers. On day three, God creates vegetation. And on day six, God gives humanity permission to do what? Eat the vegetation that was created on the corresponding. Day three B, create vegetation. Day six B, create humans and give them permission to eat the vegetation. So there are these kinds of uh, correspondence. But every day begins with, and God said, and God said, and all. God, as we've already seen, God does not have a what that you use to say things. He doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have any of the organs for speech. Uh, speech starts with lungs because it starts with air coming out of the lungs. And then it goes through, the th- it goes by the voice box, which is like a real small guitar. And when it goes through the voice box, it makes those vocal cords vibrate. And that starts, that creates sound waves. But then as those sound waves go up, they go through the mouth and they the, uh, the teeth are involved, the tongue is involved, uh, the soft palate is involved. And uh, if, if any of you had children that when they were young they had some problems in their speech, um, yeah, a lot of times it's because things aren't going the right place. The tongue is not, it's touching the hard palate or the back of the teeth instead of the soft palate. And that's why kids have trouble with like wobber. Robert roasted the rabbit. The speech therapist was telling the kid, okay, say Robert roasted the rabbit for being too rare. And I forget, but the kid said something like, yeah, Bob did something to the other. He, the kid was so smart that he just used all words that, doesn't have, that don't start with R. My dad was like that, bless his heart. One time my brother was having a conversation with my dad trying to convince my dad. So they're at lunch together, and my brother just said to my dad, Dad, look, if you don't have any memory problems, tell me what you had for breakfast today. Tim knew he was weird. So my dad sat there for a minute, and he thought, and he said, Tim, little people. My brother said, little people. He said, little people think about what they had for breakfast. I've got more important things to occupy my mind. But he found a way not to admit that he had memory problems. That's like the kid with Robert roasted the rabbit for, I don't know, however that one goes. I'm going to have to, I'm sure that's on, you can Google that one somewhere. Um, in other words, we have all of these organs of artic- all these points of articulation which is why we speak, and God doesn't have them. And so God speaks in a way that is analogous to the way humans speak, 
but it's just not a one-to-one correspondence. God did, the text says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God did bring light into existence. The Bible's not telling us how. Tomorrow morning, I'll it. But the Bible is telling us that, that God was the one who brought light out of darkness. And he not only brought light out of darkness back then, but he can still do the same today. When there is darkness in your world, when there is darkness in your life, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever as of your hearts and lives. See, this is what the Bible is interested in teaching us. Not the kind of the origin of photons or that sort of thing. Uh, We have to keep those two things separate. Let's look at one more. Um, That is God saw. And this also runs throughout. Every day it saw that the light was good. Everything that God makes, it says he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. But again, as we've already seen, that is, we didn't see it literally, did we? We saw it metaphorically. Oh, I see what you're saying. What you mean you saw? See metaphorically, for I understand what you're saying. So we... In our culture, we go back and forth between literal and figurative, and we never even stop to think about it, that we just use the word, oh, I see what you're saying. You know, I, I, I realize, let me tell you, I just used that word metaphorically. I didn't literally see. We don't even stop to think about it. Uh, and the Bible has that same kind of fluidity. And so God didn't literally see. Photons didn't go in through the ocular lens and then go by and get converged on the retina and then create electrical waves that went through the optic nerve into the brain so that it could be interpreted as good rather than ugly. Evaluate his work. He really did put his stamp of approval on his work and say this is good, 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 very good. The Bible just uses anthropomorphic language. In a sense, what else could it do? Because we're finite people talking about something that's infinite. And so God uses and he creates analogies between those things and himself so that we can understand something of who he is. I hope there's one takeaway from this weekend, I hope that God gets bigger in your mind and in your heart because we've reflected on him as maker of heaven and earth. And you realize God formed and God breathed and God said and God saw. I I hope it leads you to realize that all we're doing here is getting a little, little, little glimpse into something that is beyond our comprehension. And that's the reality of an infinite God. Moses kind of had an experience like this, didn't he? Moses said once to God, and God said, 
I can't do that. My glory is infinite. And if you saw my infinite glory, I think it would kind of be like that, uh, what was the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? If, they, if you saw that movie, remember when I think it was the German guy who finally opened the ark and then he like melted? Yeah, God says you can't see the fullness of my glory walking into the middle of a 50,000 mile wide nuclear reactor. Only much, much worse. Because I'm infinite, remember? And 50 million miles wide is still fire. So God says, but I tell you what I'll do. See in that cliff over there, there's a little nook. I'm going to put you in that nook, nook. And then my glory is going to pass by. And then after my glory passes by, I'm going to remove my hand. And I'm going to let you see my back. But my face cannot be seen. Wow. God doesn't have a hand. God doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a back. But when Moses came off the mountain, his face, what God was saying is, Moses, you can't see my face. It would consume you to see me as I am in and of myself. But I will give you a little glimpse of my glory. And just that little glimpse meant that Moses had to cover his face when appearing before the people because his radiance although it was just a small reflection of the back other people to handle. And that's what we're trying to see here as well today. That as we come to understand this figurative language, oh, it doesn't mean that, that there's less in the Scriptures. It means that there is so much more in the Scriptures because we realize that what we're seeing here are just small analogy understand something of who God is so the first thing we looked at are analogies uh, our anthropomorphic language anthropomorphisms and now let's take kind of a deep dive into just one image let's finally get into this firmament here Genesis 1 6 to 8 I'm using the NIV 2011 vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So let's let's look at this vault. I've handled this through time starting with modern translations and then going backward into ancient translations. Well, if you're using the ESV, you have the word expanse. Very tepid in my estimation. Really erases the beauty of the image that we have here. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst. 1984 NIV. And if you're using an NIV and haven't bought it recently, you probably have the old standard 1984 NIV. And it's like the ESV, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. I use the 2011 NIV, 
and it's made some good impact. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Now, this is better than expanse. This is a vault. Because when you think of vault, what comes to mind first of all? What just jumps into your mind if we say vault? A bank vault. And a bank vault is what, hopefully, that starts with S-O-L-I-D? Yeah, solid. So vault is it is solid. Or this isn't actually a, well, I guess we'd call this a vaulted ceiling, wouldn't we? Well, when you think of a vaulted ceiling, <clears throat> a vaulted ceiling is S-O-L-I-D. And a vaulted ceiling can have can lights in the vaulted ceiling. So um, three cheers for the right direction. Let's go back a little bit earlier to the 1600s to the King James. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide water, the waters from the waters. Firmament is good. What is the um, what are the first four letters in firmament? Because it fits the picture of something that is solid and substantial enough to do what with water? Hold it up above. So the firmament, uh, King James, I like that word. The downside is it's not a word that we use much in English, so it would probably need a footnote. Whereas the NIV vault doesn't need a footnote, we kind of get that expression that says tradu with an U, tradutore, Tradi with an E, traditore. And in the last one, there's only one T. In the first one, there's two T's. Traditore, traditore. A translator is a traitor. Because whenever you're moving from one language to another, it's lost or a little bit is added. And uh, so, hence the expression, the translator uh, is a traitor. It's hard to get this Hebrew word into English with, with one word. Um, okay, why did the King James use the English word firmament? Um, <coughs> of some English translations that started with John Wycliffe. That name ring a bell? Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Wycliffe was the first one to translate the Bible into English, and it cost him his life. Until Wycliffe, uh, for, for, let's just give him a rough date of 1400 B.C., until Wycliffe, from 400 A.D., back to 400 A.D., for a thousand years, there was only one translation in the Western church. What was the language? Latin. Jerome's Vulgate. Uh, we think the King James had a long run. Uh, King James didn't have a run half as long as the Vulgate did, as the Bible, the translation. So when we go back to Jerome's Vulgate, it's just kind of firmament with a Latin um on the end of it. Firmamentum. And if we get our Latin dictionary out and we say, what's firmamentum mean? we find out that firmamentum simply means something that is solid. 
So the King James firmamentum is coming from the Latin. Well, what was the Old Testament translated into before it was translated into Latin? Greek. Called the Septuagint. Roughly 200 B.C., Jews are now dispersed. Greek is the language of the world. And Jews want their Bible in the language that the Old Testament gets translated out of Hebrew into Greek for Greek-speaking Jews. Of course, this is a wonderful advantage when the church is about to spread because everybody's speaking Greek, not everybody's speaking Hebrew. So if Paul wants to go do a weekend Bible conference at a PCA church, he can bring his Greek translation with him, knowing that everybody there is going to do Greek, but not every tool in the providence of God. So when we look at our verse in the... uh, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 200 B.C., stereomai, I'll spell that one for you, S-T-E-R-E-O, like stereo, with a ma on the end of it, stereomai. Now, when we get out this word then, it simply means something that is solid. So, vault, N-I-V, Firmament, King James. Firmamentum, Jerome's Latin. Thereoma, Greek, 200 B.C. They all have a constant thread in them. They're all referring to something that is solid. See that expanse just doesn't do it in this history of translation. Now, having seen that, we've got to take a look at the Hebrew word itself. And just take a wild guess as to why the Septuagint, the Latin, and the King James all use some word in their language for something that is solid. What's your wild guess about the Hebrew word? It means something that is solid. The word is ra-ki-ah. You could spell it R-A-Q-I-A. Rakia. Rakia. This, this word itself is only used 17 times in the whole Hebrew Bible, and nine of them are in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, so half of them, over half of them are in our... told you that Hebrew words have uh, three core letters, and in, in this word, there's an R, there's a Q, and then there's a letter that we don't have. We don't even make the sound. It's a guttural, Latin gutur, uh, in the throat. Uh, we don't have anything like it in English. So it's an R, a Q, three core letters. Rakia, uh, by the way, anytime you see a Hebrew word translated, transliterated into English in your Bible and there are two vowels right together, no, that's not the case. There's probably one of these letters that we don't have, and so we just drop it out. But Hebrew mothers... Never let their kids say words that had two vowels in a row. It just doesn't happen in Hebrew. So wherever you see like Baal, B-A-L, and there's a, there's a throat consonant in between there that we don't make, so we just drop it out altogether. So the verb, rakia, is the thing. The verb raka, throat sound, 
let's look at a couple of cases of that. Let's look at Exodus 39.3 just to get a feel for uh, this word. Read. This is talking about making stuff for the tabernacle. And in verse 3 it says, they hammered out. There's our word right there. That's the verbal form of the word that is translated permanent. They hammered out a thin uh, to be worked into blue, purple, scarlet yarn, etc. So when we think of this word, this verb, what's this verb mean? It means to take something like sheet metal and to hammer it. And when you hammer it, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner until it gets so thin that you can cut it like fabric and then you can weave it together to make whatever it presumes that what you're doing is you're working on something that is like a piece of metal. Hammer. This word means to hammer metal into shape. Let's look at another example, Jeremiah 10, 9, uh, Jeremiah 10, 9. Prophet Jeremiah. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish. Let me just uh, throw a comment in here. To say these folks were ancient, and they didn't understand modern science, is not to disparage their brilliance. Another homework assignment this afternoon. Read Job 28, some of the ancient mining technology that these folks had. It's really pretty remarkable. So they were very bright people. Uh, they were master engineers. You just think of, like, people building the sphinxes people building uh, the, the tombs in Egypt and the weight of those stones and the engineering and setting it in the right position. Yeah, these were bright people. Uh, they just didn't have our technology and our knowledge. But let's not disparage the ancients as all of those poor pre-enlightened, benighted people living in darkness who didn't know anything. No, they were very sharp folks. But uh, the point is, our word is used with regard to hammered out silver. Make a silver bar, Bible about ancient smelting, phenomenal. And then hammer it till it gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and it's the, the shape and the size that we want. That's what we're talking about here uh, with regard to this rakia. When you think of the rakia, think of a hammered out piece of um, metal. Now, there's a, a related noun, rikua. Remember the musical theme and the theme 38. Numbers 16, 38. Uh, my translation breaks this into a, um, this is a kind of like a parenthesis. At the beginning of the verse, the censors of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Then overlay the altar. That's, the, that's a close cousin. A hammered out piece of solid metal. That's really what our rakia is. And ancient Jews 
when they're translating the Bible into Greek, they understood what a rakia was, that it was a solid dome-like vault metal. That's why they called it rakia, and that's why they chose a Greek word for something that is solid. When Jerome was translating this verse and these verses into Latin, he understood. See, he's not reading the Bible through the lens of modern science. He's way before that. So his understanding of this, by trying to make this language line up with a scientific understanding of the world, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, the King James, they're translating this based on this history of tradition, all going back to the idea that this thing that God makes to hold the water up is F-I-R firmly. I didn't take the time to look back at Wycliffe. I could find it. Uh, you can just find the Wycliffe's uh, first and second translations online. and I'll, I'll check and see what, what Wycliffe does with this. But I'm betting he's going to use the word firmly. One thing that's fun about reading, like the old Wycliffe translation, yeah, this guy named Webster, you know, who said, let's have a dictionary and let's um, let's re- read anything like pre-Webster and you'll find out how words were spelled in like 30 different ways uh, before the regularization of spelling. So the Hebrew word means something that is solid, hence the Greek, hence the Latin, hence the English firmament, and maybe the NIV vault, which at least communicates that solidness, is the best we can do. We've seen the translations. We've seen the Hebrew word. Let's just remind ourselves of the image. Uh, The firmament is put in place to divide, to separate the water above the firmament from the water below the firmament. Presupposition is, when we're thinking about it, is that it has to be solid in order to hold water up. And not only does it have to be solid to hold water up, since it is, they have to be workable windows so that the windows can be open so that the water can come down in the form of rain. And the earth is floating on the waters that are below the firmament. Uh, that's why Psalm 136 six refers to God as the one who spread out the earth on the waters. Psalm 24 that we've seen the earth is the Lord's and established it upon the waters. Psalm 104.5, God set the earth on its foundations because it's on water so that it wouldn't totter. Uh, Psalm 104.3, God's house is on beams because it's on the celestial water like our earthly home is on the terrestrial water. Ours is on beams, foundation pillars. God's is on beams. Of recited before, but you probably have never stopped to think about it, but I hope you will from now on. Have you ever recited the Ten Commandments? In some Presbyterian churches, it's tradition to recite the Ten Commandments the Sunday before the celebration of the Lord's Supper to kind of prepare us and remind us as to why it is that we need the Lord's Supper. For yourself an image in the form of anything. Anybody remember where? Anything in heaven above, 
or on the earth below or the waters under the earth. Well, now that makes perfect sense to you, doesn't it? image of the Bible with the heavens above, the earth below, and then the waters under the earth. Now, those waters under the earth, they actually come up at each side of the earth. That's why the Bible says the Lord will reign from sea to sea. Because in this image that runs throughout the Bible, the earth at each end, and that's part of where the sun does its circuit thing. It knows the place where it sets at the end of the world. And, of course, what did some people think Columbus was going to do? They thought he was going to finally go out to the edge and he'd be gone. Yeah, um, because they made the mistake of taking this figurative language of the Bible, what? Literally, yeah. I didn't think that was the case. And so he thought he could get to the east by going west. And uh, so, uh, at any rate, heavens above, earth beneath, waters below. So we just, I'll just close and then entertain some questions by by going back to something simple like the flood story. Of the flood story, make perfect sense. What God is doing at the time of the flood is what some people call uncreation. God is deconstructing. And as a matter of fact, after the flood, do you remember what God said? God said, okay, folks, be fruitful, earth, subdue it. In other words, the flood uncreated everything, and with Adam and his progeny, God's starting all over. A second shot at this thing. By the way, and hopefully I'll get back to the point here. Uh, If you were to divide all world history into two big epics as a Christian, what would you put? into two halves. What would you think as a Christian who knows the Bible? Yeah, the coming of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. But that's not where the Bible divides everything. The Bible divides everything at the flood. In the language of King James, which you have to come back to sometime, Peter says, and destroyed by water, The world that now is being reserved for judgment by fire. See, there are two worlds. The world that then was and the world that now is. The world that then was started in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And God deconstructed the whole thing at the flood. The world that now is. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In the days of Noah... So it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Because the days of Noah was a time of judgment on the world that then was. And when Jesus comes again, it's going to be a time of judgment on the world that now is. That's your two big epics in biblical history. The world that then was, creation to Noah. The world that now is. So, the point is that God brought everything back to kind of Genesis 1-2.
formless and void and darkness over the surface of the deep. Remember in Genesis 1-2 how God started to rectify that? But, there was a, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. Flood is a wind from God, dries everything up. Well, the word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach, and the word for wind in Hebrew is ruach. It's the exact same thing. So God's ruach is the saving factor in both of those scenes. But did you notice how does God judge the created state at the time of the flood? Well, in effect, he undoes his firmament structure. He opens the windows and says, ain't shutting them, folks. And he lets all that water come down. And he opens up the fountains of the great deep, not shutting them until it's like Genesis 1-2. And as in Genesis 1-2 at the end, the Ruach of God in Genesis 8, 1 and 2, God sends a Ruach and begins to dry things up to bring about a new creation. To understand the flood story is not to understand the formation of the Grand Canyon. It's just to have this ancient picture. And once we have this ancient picture in our minds, then the flood story makes perfect sense of God taking us back and undoing his beautiful work of creation as an act of judgment. And then after that, he brings about an act of salvation and he dries everything up and gives us the new commission to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth uh, and to subdue. Well, I hope we've and in particular that you'll start to have that reticular activator go off and you'll start to see this picture other places where you've never seen it before. Just keep your eyes open for it, literally, when you're reading your Bible. And uh, Lord willing, you will see it more. And as you see it more, you'll get the message of it. Some questions? Yes, a lot of discussion on that. And and simply put, uh, image is like reflection, like you look in the mirror and you see a reflection of yourself. It's not you, but it's a reflection of you. Uh, uh, There's a light above me. I don't know, are there lights behind me here? Okay, sure. Can you see the crosses on the wall? Okay, those aren't crosses, are they? They're kind of a, a shadow a reflection of the crosses on the flag. So everything is a reflection of something about God. That's what it means to be in his image. That when you look at another human being, if you have a biblical view of the world, not a biblical worldview, but a biblical view of the world, when you look at another human being, you should see something about God. Uh, The fact that you have a body enables you to image God. It can, your body can remind you that God communicates to you, that God hears you when you pray. In the garden, remember, they were walking about in the cool of the day, 
It's like the old hymn, and we got enough Baptists here who should know this one. Um, I come to the... Yeah, you probably haven't sung that lately in a Presbyterian church, but it's a great hymn. It was my dad's favorite. I come to the... A little too touchy-feely romantic for Presbyterians from a Scottish background. But, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Yeah, see, that's beautiful. Very personal. Too personal for Scots. Um, but see, everything about you. Now, so while that's true, a person, so does God. Do you ever feel angry? So does God. Do you ever feel jealous? So does God. Uh, all the emotions that we have are teaching us something about what God is like. Albeit, He's infinite and He's not sinful. So His jealousy is a pure jealousy. Ours is you. So, number one, everything that you are teaches you something about who God is. And that's why you shouldn't suppress who you are. The fact that we're male and female teaches us something about God. Uh, Now, the Bible predominantly uses male imagery for God, but God is not male, right? God doesn't have sex organs. He's spirit. As male, it doesn't do so exclusively. Uh, In the prophets and in the Psalms, The Bible uses the imagery of God as a nursing mother, his tenderness, his provision, the trust that that nursing child has uh, at the bosom of God the mother. I'm not a wacko liberal. This is just the language that the Bible uses. Thinks, you think, it's all teaching you something about God. But there is a focal point, and the focal point of the image of God is our royalty. God, as we're going to see tomorrow morning, Lord willing, in the sermon, God is king of creation. And since you're in his image, you're queen of creation. You men here are king in your blood, so to speak, in your DNA, because you are in the image of the divine king. Uh, A wonderful movie. Um, Princess Diaries. If have you watched it? If you haven't, that's my next assignment for you. Princess Diaries. Do I have the right? Especially, guys, if you want a little bit more testosterone in a chick flick kind of movie, the sword fighting is just great. I don't think that word means what he thinks it means. Great movie, but in uh, in Prince, picture Mia at the beginning of Princess Diaries. Diary, diaries, diaries, plural. Okay, she walks like this. Her hair is frumpy. At the end of the movie, Mia's walking like this. Beautiful makeup, beautiful hair, beautiful clothing, and that outward transformation is a metaphor in the movie For her inner transformation. Why does she look so different? So different. She carries herself like royalty. 
Now, in the beginning of the movie, was she not royal? She was. She just didn't what? She didn't know it. And so our being in the image of God is very important for our self-awareness and our awareness of others. Let us make man in our image so that they can have dominion. The first thing we're told about in the image passage is that we're royal rulers over the earth in God's place. And so just remember that that, uh, princess diaries and Mia's transformation. She simply became aware of how many of us need that. Need to quit thinking of ourselves as who other people think we are, who we have been telling ourselves we are, and need to think of ourselves as made in the image of God, royalty, royal bearing, kings, queens. Trust me, start to think this way about yourself and it will revolutionize you. And then uh, those middle schoolers and the kindergartners, yeah, my wife deals with them every day as a guidance counselor. Yeah, you can either look at those middle schoolers as snotty brats or as image bearers. Do you think it's going to make a difference in how you treat them? Yeah. Now, I don't know if, if you have much of a home. certainly go into Atlanta and you see somebody with a sign, we'll work for food. And the question is, what do you see? Uh, there's somebody that made a bunch of bad mistakes and is just reaping what they sowed. There's the image of God. Yep. It's like Grandma's pewter vase that I found up in the attic. It's got an awful lot of tarnish on the outside. There's no luster to it at all. But with a little bit of gospel elbow grease and transformation, all of a sudden, the brilliance of a royal person starts to show. So that's a big question, image of God. Two things, everything about you, image of God. And there's a particular point, and that is your worldview. Bill? Yeah. So I was earlier when you were speaking about us being finite and God being infinite, and I, for some reason what came to mind was First Corinthians thirteen twelve, and I just wanted to read it real quickly, and then I wanted to hear what you were, you were just speaking of. For now we see only a reflection, as in now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Yeah, I think that, remember when I said that I thought when I was a kid that when I'd get to heaven I would know everything, and that can't be because I'm not going to become God, and I'm not going to have infinite knowledge. But I will know everything that I need to know. I will have the fullness of human knowledge. I don't, and you don't either. And sometimes that can be painful. Um, Are we recording this? Could you stop the recorder for a second? Thank you.